After spending years at Google working on projects that ranged from the Google Plus platform to the Google Workspaces, Danny Chow landed himself a job working at Tekton AI. He currently is becoming a big name within the Feast community, considering he leads relations with many of the design partners, and he also is the person behind the Feast newsletter. Link in the description in case you want to join that mailing list. In our conversation today, we talk about how Danny's past experiences help guide him with the work that he is doing on Feast and what some of the key differences are when you're working on internal projects at a behemoth of a company such as Google to working on open source projects at a startup such as Tekton. Hope you enjoy this episode. I am your host, Demetrios Brinkman, and this is The Feast Podcast. Danny, it's great to be chatting with you today, and I'm excited to hear about what you've been working on with Feast. I think it's worth taking the time, though, to hear about your story because you've gone through a lot. You've done a lot of very cool things, and I would love to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess a quick uh, background about who I, what I'm doing right now. So I'm currently on the Feast team, you know, just kind of figuring out like where we're where we're headed and is engaging with the community and building a lot of cool stuff in the feature store space. But before that, I was at Google for around seven and a half years, and a lot of that was I kind of like telling people that I was kind of just riding different waves. So I joined Google, and Google was like social first. I don't know if like people remember really that phase where Google Plus was Google like Plus? all the rage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like Google's like number one priority. Um, and then were you working on Google Plus? I was, yeah. I um, oh, wow. worked a lot on a specific intersection of Google Plus and next billion users. Like uh, basically like the idea was there are all these new users coming onto the internet, like such as people in India, right? How do we capture that market in the social demographic? And so that was kind of like the, the intersection I was in. And then after that, kind of Google went through this like mobile wave and I was all part of that mobile wave, kind of building Android stuff everywhere. And then afterwards, kind of, you know, my manager was like, hey, like you should probably, you know, check out this ML stuff. Like it's, it's going to be a big thing. And then I went along that, you know, rabbit hole that's kind of led me here today. But yeah, like I, a lot of my later years at Google were spent building kind of these ML systems for what now is known as Google Workspace, what used to be known as G Suite. So like Google Docs, Google Sheets, Google Slides, mm -hmm. et cetera. And yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. There's, uh, I don't know, like, you know, to what extent people know, but Google has a massive research arm. So a lot of this time was spent interfacing between, you have these like research teams that are just searching for potential product partners, ways to kind of apply the research. And then you have these product teams who don't really know how to integrate machine learning into their products. Uh, you know, how do you even think about long-term planning? How do you think about risk management? You know, what's, what's important to prioritize first? How do you stage projects, right? Like that's all just really hard for these teams to do. So we were kind of in this middle layer that was bridging those gaps as well as building out this infrastructure for you to actually be able to do that. So kind of what modern term people might call like a platform team, right? So you were like a project manager in these? events or what was your role? Yeah, it was more kind of like more like an MLE, like a machine learning engineer. Uh -huh. um, 
So, but in practice, it would be doing whatever is needed to get the project moving. So if I meant, you know, diving into like front-end code and writing JavaScript or CSS, like that's what I would be doing, right? And 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 or, or if it meant building kind of my own mo- prototype models to convince research teams that actually, yes, this data that we're working with is um, is a good use case for your research, you know, then I'd be doing that, right? So I'm kind of all over the place. Uh, security and privacy was big of a concern because you're working with enterprise data. So often was like talking to you know lawyers or uh, kind of our privacy counsel to figure out how do we build functionality that doesn't compromise on user privacy at all, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. So this is fascinating because you would have to go and make the case to the researchers that something that they were working on or something that you had, which was the data, is worth spending their time trying to iterate on and create some kind of product with machine learning? Yeah, I mean, by, by the time I was leaving Google, Google had shifted many ways towards this very data-centric approach to problems where it was clear that you know certainly the innovation that you have in your model uh, architecture matters a lot, but ultimately, if you could just throw more data at it, like it was just going to always turn out better performance, right? But also that meant that there was all these like data-specific challenges. Like if your data you know, has all these, is not very clean, then that's going to introduce a lot of issues. And people will never be super sure about whether their model architecture would translate particularly well to our use cases, right? Like, and one, one example might be, um, I guess I don't know how much I can divulge, but like, uh, certainly a lot of work we did in Google Sheets was, you know, you're working with not just like words in a sentence, you're working with this like two-dimensional grid with like relationships between each other. And so they're like, what is this data? How do I deal with it? How do you do machine learning on this, right? So, so there's certainly that component. And then the other component is all these research teams need to optimize towards some sort of business metric, right? And the clearest one is, you know, like there's the elephant in the room, which is like search and ads, right, at Google. How do you fight against search and ads? And that's where you kind of like, you do have to build some sort of case, right? Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, a lot of these research teams are still, you know, very willing to explain to you what they're doing and at least entertain an early POC, Right, and that's uh, kind of you know where our team as a glue came in to like ensure success of that, um, and ensure that the product teams will continue to bought in, be bought in, and then you know it gets a lot of these teams also like they're used to you know researchers they're used to working with like public data sets they can look at everything, uh, you know these Kaggle competitions you you build a model it doesn't really work okay you just kind of dig into where it doesn't work and inspect the data and you can figure out like new features or different. Things to do. Uh, it's very, very different in enterprise where all this data is confidential. You can't go in and inspect things, right? So there's a lot of unique challenges in working um, with us as a client. That is fascinating because of a conversation I was just having like a week ago on the whole data-centric way of doing machine learning and how important it is to have this be very familiar with your data and have high quality data and have less is more kind of approach. But it seems like in this case, you couldn't do that because of the constraints that were there. And so they had to figure out ways of making something that was useful while throwing all this data at it and having it be in that style instead. Did you ever hear... The I like the ideas of data centric 
ML as opposed to the model centric? Was that something that was being mm. thrown around? N- not those exact terms internally, I would say, but it was certainly uh, as far as, you know, if you talk to anybody or you look at any guide on how do you improve your model performance, generally speaking, the answer was don't try to do too, too much with your model. Like if you have a simple model, but a lot of data that's clean, you'll do better than if you have a super innovative model. Uh, and, and a lot of this stuff is super empirical anyways. So, um, and then it was also midway through the whole wave of like transfer learning, right? The kind of the space that, uh, that hugging faces in particular are really taking advantage of, right? Like you can take a massive amount of not very clean data, pre-train a good amount of stuff on that and learn interesting relationships and then tra- fine tune on a couple of examples or, I mean, sometimes more than a couple of examples, right? And enjoy really, really good performance. And so... Uh, a lot of that wave was getting really big at Google. Uh, T5 is notably kind of, the, I think, the m- most recent Google version of like a transformer-based model that is public. So, um, yeah, a lot of kind of cool innovations are constantly hap- happening at Google. Uh, so it was really cool to be part of that community. Okay, so you went through these waves, as you call them, and yeah. you rode the wave of Google+. Plus which we all know how yeah. that went. Then you wrote Android, which did a little bit better in the eyes of the public. And then you started right. messing around with uh, ML. And then at some point, I imagine you said, I want to try something new and I want a new endeavor. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just, you start out by hearing from all these other people who are in this industry. And it's like, okay, well, clearly what we're doing what we were doing at Google is actually quite different from how other people experience ML. And this, this manifests in all sorts of ways. Like, you know, on the highest level, you might think of this as just being like, you know, Google has its own internal versions of every single kind of software and there's certainly ecosystem differences. But, you know, even more specific, like one thing that I have learned recently, right, is that there is this massive shift towards data warehouse-centric uh, ML. And, None of the teams I was working with had that as a concept, right? Like they were kind of still very much in the old ETL lifestyle where you would build these massive jobs that read from um, some data lake somewhere or data, some database somewhere, do massive transformations. And that's kind of what went into your models, right? And um, kind of there was a, there's a pretty consistent story I was hearing both internally as well as externally that actually the ecosystem for iterating, developing, and um, shipping models was actually, oddly enough, more mature outside of Google um, than it was internally. My guess is that it's just able to iterate a lot faster and kind of uh, outside, whereas internally, there a lot of these massive systems are dependent on these the infrastructure, so you can't iterate as quickly, right? Yeah, yeah that is a hot take right there. And almost controversial, uh, I'm going to say. I really appreciate this perspective because we have so many of the huge papers that come out and like the beacons of light in the MLOps world that feels like come out of Google. You have like the ML test score or the high interest credit card debt. And to think like, oh, well, maybe actually there's so much, dare I say, legacy at Google. Now there's some cool cutting edge stuff that's happening outside of Google and you felt like you wanted to check that out. You were like, I got to go see what is on the other side of the fence. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to learn more about 
what everyone else is doing in the space. And also it's just you hear about all these small teams that are able to you know, make incredible traction outside of Google uh, on machine learning spaces. And it's like, well, at Google, I just constantly felt like we needed more and more people. Like, you know, the larger the team, the better, especially if you want to get some, anything out in a reasonable amount of time. You know, people outside were able to do this. So it was like super interesting to dive into that wow. space and see what people were doing. There's also something interesting that you said just a minute ago about doing machine learning with data warehouses. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is like, uh, you know, people will call this like the whole ETL to ELT kind of transition that's happening. But, you know, in a lot of the, I guess this is now moving to my life in Feast now, right? Like a lot of the people we talk to, a lot of users in community, you know, they're telling us that their primary way to get data out to do like transformations often as well is through data warehouses, you know, like, um, you know, I've heard kind of that BigQuery is one of the, the main drivers of GCP kind of growth. And, you know, obviously there's like Snowflake out there as well, which is really doubling down on that as well. But people are definitely relying on, you know, you're able to do a lot of things much more quickly within BigQuery and Iterate and uh, or data warehouses generally, sorry, and do all this kind of data joins. And those are things that actually would be fairly complex engineering projects at Google. Like if I want to do a basic join of two large data sets, I need to do like significant thinking uh, and how do, I, how do I go about doing that, right? Or like say I want to like process all this like event data and like move that in a way that I can use for machine learning. That That's a lot of plugging data and like making a pipeline to make that happen. Whereas now a lot of data warehouses really simplify that flow, right? So let's talk about how Feast ties into that and what, has been your experience so far when it comes to that flow and doing machine learning with these data warehouses and having Feast? In a way, it's like it sits on top of it. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, a data warehouse is still primarily used as this analytical backend, right? And you can use that for training your models, but there's still a big difference between that and moving into you know, a model that you want to infer in, in production, right? Like something that's more real time. There's still a big gap there. And then the other kind of major gap that is being seen, and I think the story that's going to get more and more crisp over time is what is a story for someone who's trying to build an individual model and then trying to figure out how do you, how do you improve upon that, right? And one way to do that is to figure out, well, what are all the kinds of features I could have available to me for this model? And that's kind of where feature sorting comes in, right? It's some part is preparing your data for online inference for you know this low latency inference phase. But a big part of it, and I think it's an underappreciated part, is actually expanding the solution space for these you know ML researchers or these data scientists. Right? It's like, hey, like actually, there's all these other ways to transform this data. There's all this other data you have, um, or the, all these other aggregate data that you know. There's all these other teams writing these pipelines that generate these aggregate features and you can actually just use that in your model, right? And that's uh, that's a big challenge. And, you know, even, at, even at Google, that was a big challenge as well that teams were looking into. You made the change, you jumped ship, you started working at Feast. What was it like? Because you started working right when, basically right when point one oh came out, right? And it started with the Python-centric Feast? Something like that, yeah. Point eleven, I want to say, is when I came in. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and just before point twelve hit, so very very recent, uh, you know, and on the order of like several months ago, and 
I mean, to start, there was like this massive knowledge gap of like, you know, I know how Google does everything. And in fact, it was kind of fun because we, I had another ex-Googler join with me and we were both like, we know how machine learning works at Google. How do we find the equivalent terms for everything else in the ecosystem, right? So there was that fun and continuing onboarding that's happening because it's such a massive space. There's so many tools and like every company is kind of integrating with them differently and um, so that's, and then every, you know, user that comes to use Feast has their own unique configurations as well, right? So for me to be able to help them in this situation, I need to learn more about what they're doing and all the tools they're using. Um, so it's very, very, you know, sharp learning curve and onboarding process, which has been super fun to do. Along those lines, have you seen trends emerging with people that are coming to use for Feast and in like tools or use cases or different needs that they have? Yeah, I think that Feast is becoming, I mean, this transition from Feast 0.9 to Feast 0.10 was you know, kind of controversial in the community, but it was because anybody who had already used Feast 0.9 was already using it, you know, at like high scale, low latency. And then, we, you know, Python-centric Feast was a very big pivot to attempt to hit simplicity at its core, right? Like kind of um, nobody really wants a complex start to feast. And I think that's kind of opened the, the overall just demographic of people who've come to us as like, we want to use feast. So uh, there's a lot more of these like unique recommender systems that are coming, use cases that are coming up, um, you know, and even just like simple uh, models. Like before, I think, there was a lot more of like, hey, I have this you know, very infra-heavy use case that I want to do that requires a lot of this, um, you know, materialization of these offline features and to be ready for online serving. But now there's actually a good number of people who are also like, hey, like even for just uh, models that are purely batch and offline, like there's still a lot of value in, in Feast. And otherwise, trends in terms of what I'm seeing, I would say that there definitely is a much more vibrant kind of open source community than I thought in this space. Like there's a lot of mm -hmm. open source, you know, projects that integrate with other projects and people who are coming to us are, I guess they're biased because they're coming, they're already using open source, but they're like very plugged in, right? And they're like, hey, I can use Feast in this way and like this other open source project in this way and we'll make this connection and that's how I'm going to solve the overall uh, ecosystem. And so uh, to me, that's that's been fascinating to see not only is there this way to use like managed services like you know AWS Personalize or the equivalents in, in Google or AutoML, it's also you know I can like without too too much work stand up a whole system by myself using all this different open source stuff that's I think all moving and it's in the direction of simplicity, right? So that mm -hmm. you know a very small platform team can actually make a support a large data science team. I, I wonder what are some of the different tools or open source projects that you had to go learn about that you, you weren't aware of. And I'm sure that when you were working with people, they said, oh, well, we've got XYZ. And you probably thought to yourself, uh, I don't know exactly what that does. I got to go learn about that. Right. It's like one or two of oh those. My God. There's, there's so many. I mean, most recently I was looking into Merlin from NVIDIA. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting kind of how they're position in the overall ecosystem. And it, it's in a way that resonates well with what I saw internally at Google, which is that mm -hmm. there is actually also this hardware dependency for machine learning. 
Uh, and NVIDIA is just really, really good at taking advantage of and optimizing that flow. I guess there's the, you know, I guess, I think DBT is open source, right? Yep. Um, yeah. So kind of looking into that, what other open source stuff that's out there? I mean, there's like, it's hard to think about what exact, what exact open source has been so many projects. Were there um, any, this is just my own, just scratching my own itch. Yeah. Were there like databases that have come up and you were like, oh, I've never heard of that database? Or is it pretty vanilla when it comes to databases? I think there's an emergence of stuff that's happening, but for the most part, I do still hear the the old style database. Like, you know, people are using Dynamo, people are using a lot of like data lakes, people are, are beginning to move things into data warehouses. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that's beginning to come, right? Like the prestos of the world that are beginning to take hold. Um, the, you know, I've definitely heard of Cockroach DB as coming up in conversations as well. Um, yeah, I mean, not, not to say that Cockroach isn't vanilla, it's just kind of not one of the traditional databases that people think about when they think about yeah. databases, right? Uh, yeah. So there's certainly trends, but I would definitely still say overall people are like AWS heavy and then um, kind of GCP has definitely done a lot of casual. And that, and that was kind of actually too shock to me as, um, or mm-hmm. not really a shock. It was, I didn't realize how far GCP had come in terms of market adoption until you know, recently. I think there was the whole like a uh, stack overflow survey that came out, right? That also called out this, this massive catching up that GCP did to AWS on that front. So, yeah, I see that in the MLOps community too. It feels like there's more questions that are coming up around GCP. Now, you jumped in to the Feast ecosystem. You were able to get up to speed pretty quick. I mean, it's only been a magnitude of months, right? Um, right. Since you've you started working there, you did a lot though. You've I've seen that you're doing a lot for the community, going and meeting people that are in the community, and you've also started like a newsletter. You're doing community calls. How has all that been? Did you have experience with that beforehand? Yeah, I mean, it's been super fun working with the community. I would say that Google actually prepared me fairly well for this because, right, like as I said, there was this you know, large research arm that was full of these sub-teams. And uh, I think at Google, or probably at any large company, you're, you play the game of how do, you, how do you get a bunch of these teams that aren't really reporting into your same chain to collaborate on a project and succeed, right? And that's kind of what the open source community is kind of like, right? Like if you can motivate the right people, drive people towards the same vision, then you can do things way faster than if you were just a small team as executing on it. So I've always been a huge believer in, you know, how do I build Feast towards what people need and, and drive people towards a common vision within Feast? You know, one of the, one of the first things that happened when I came was we were, the team was talking about documentation, like, oh, we need to like really update our documentation. And I was like, absolutely, yes. Like this is this is gonna really help the community be able to contribute and help people understand what Feast is and let's absolutely double down on that, right? Um, the newsletter is kind of another step in that direction where we, there's all this knowledge that's locked away in, for example, RFCs and random Slack messages. Yeah. And, I want to make sure that people as a community are learning about what are these best practices, what is this consistent vision of what feature stores are. And a lot of that is, is you know, I'm trying to push people to 
connect with each other more. And that's this newsletter is intended to highlight, you know, here's all the stuff that's happening in Feast, right? Here's all some, some snippets of what the community is doing, some snippets of some key RFCs that are coming out. And here's some other stuff that's already in the works, but hasn't quite matured yet, right? And we want to get feedback. So that, that's kind of what I'm really passionate about. And people in the community have been super, uh, you know, super receptive to it. And they're, they're always super patient too. Like, hey, like, we have our use case. You may not fully understand it. Let me sit down with you and explain to you what's happening and why like our specific use case means you need to design this thing differently, right? And I want to kind of basically mm-hmm. take everything I've learned during my onboarding and make sure that everyone in the community uh, enjoys the same kind of knowledge base. You have to weigh out all of these desires from many different sources, right? And yes. You ha- yeah. And then, as you said, you have to try to get people to build their own stuff sometimes. Like, how bad do you want this? You got to go and you got to make that yourself if you really want it. Uh, but fundamentally, sometimes they could be blocked on something and it's not even possible unless they get mm-hmm. a green light. How much of your day is spent on calls with the community? And how much of it is actually planning with Willem about Feast, like brainstorming ideas or going back and talking about these ideas? And then how much, when do you find the time to mm-hmm. update the docs or actually code some stuff and bug bash in Feast? Yeah, I, for me, it's all thinking about whatever is highest leverage for me to work on, I'll try to just index on that. And so in many cases, there's a lot of momentum in the community. And so I'll, I'll that, there's certainly weeks where most of my time is just spent on these calls I think the key thing to also understand is people come to us expecting that we can advise them on best practices. Like this is such a you know nascent space. People are like, hey, like how are other people solving this problem? What do you think is the best way for us to solve this problem? You know, and depending on who the user is, they may be more or less willing to change how their existing setup is to match that. But generally there is this, this hunger for like, hey, come up with what makes sense in the long term given your expertise, right? And so I think more and more recently, I've been trying to focus a lot more on talking to Willow and other folks on what actually makes sense in terms of a long-term vision for where this all should land, right? And how do we kind of move towards that? Because otherwise, you risk having just a community dragging all these different directions. And yeah, um, yeah, that I think that really gets against one of the core things I think Feast should always be, which is simple. Like you can't get these all these new users to come in and enjoy value if it's going to take a really, really long time to kind of stand something up. Uh, how do we make it as intuitive as possible to address as many use cases as possible is uh, really a core principle I want to continue to drive at. How does that get reflected? Like you're saying you've been bouncing ideas off of Willem and you're also trying to really visualize this vision and what the core practices are and the simplicity of Feast. Mm-hmm. How does that actually get manifested in the product, in Feast? Like, what are some things that you have to do to maintain that? One of the big things is probably just the attention to detail on the pluggability, the extension points in Feast, the, the APIs that we design. And, uh, you know, we've seen this big explosion and people building custom plugins for, you know, their own, like, databases they want to use for, for online serving or whatever. And a lot of that, I think, is to none of my credit at all. It's the existing team that already built is really, really intuitive interface that everyone is able to, to use. And I think that was, that was a big win. In terms of like other stuff, I think it's a lot of it's like incremental, like figuring out what are the common questions that people have and how do you 
bake that into the design. So people come to us and they're like, hey, like, how do I test one of my random custom plugins? And that's why this, we had this major refactor that kind of abstracts that away in the test suite so that you can, you know, plug, throw in anything that you want and we'll kind of abstract away all the complexity of like plumbing data around and figuring out all the individual use cases that you need to test, right? Like that's all abstracted away. So it's a matter of just like you introduce a new, say like offline store, you add a couple of lines and now we test the full set of behaviors for what we expect out of offline store, right? I think that's really, really powerful as well. Um, longer term, right? Like I think where this is headed is how do you, how do we simplify the overall stack for people in this space, right? There's, uh, there's people today, you know, as I mentioned, people are relatively plugged into the open source community, but it's still every integration requires a good amount of work. And I see it as, you know, even if integration is not that hard to do for us, we should probably be doing some integrations because that'll simplify the use case for, you know, somebody who's just coming in, I want to power my data scientist's work right now. And today the answer might be, I need to look at like dozens of different projects to get that working together. And if I can say a year down the road, Feast kind of encompasses basic parts of a lot of that so that you only, instead of 10, 10 to 20 different projects, you can just focus on like four or five core competencies. That would be like a huge success for me. And examples of that on the roadmap are like some basic data quality monitoring, I think is on the horizon, right? Where certainly there are much more complex systems out there to deal with this. But I think a lot, you know, the 90% of folks want just some basic functionality there. And I think we can do that pretty quickly with, with Feast, right? So that's an example of, I think, uh, how even though you add functionality, you actually simplify the use, user flow for these users, right? Mm -hmm. And are you telling the design partners that are coming to you or just people in the community that come to you and ask you for your advice and you're advising them on how to move forward or what you think the best solution would be in their specific use case, are you telling them these kind of things? Are you advising, we need to cut the stack? We got to yeah. try, less is more here? We, we do actually say that in a bunch of calls, like, you know, especially people who are less, they have, you know, often what we'll hear is like people have this like, a bunch of different data sources, a bunch of these pipelines that work with these data sources. And then you have, uh, you know, in the feast language, online stores, and they'll have all these multiple online stores that they're working with. And they'll, they'll kind of just query things one at a time. And, and there's definitely architectural changes that we can suggest like, hey, you don't need uh, this amount of complexity. You can, if you pipe everything through a data warehouse, for example, that often is a big simplification for people. So yeah, I think we are making those kinds of uh, choices. And there's other kinds of things that we're highlighting that uh, I think, you know, aren't given enough attention because people just don't know they have these issues, right? Like training serving SKU is something that is definitely probably present in every machine learning model, but people don't necessarily know if that SKU is there, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that kind of comes at the heart of why would you want something like on-demand transforms, like this consistent transformation layer that happens uh, at your model training time and your serving time. Right, like, why would you? Why would you want that? You know, it's not super clear to the traditional stack until you've actually gone through the process of building a model doesn't work the way you want it to. Now you kind of got to do this painful debugging, right? And people aren't necessarily always aware of that, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right? Like, uh, it's it's kind of why you know machine learning has been honestly like 
kind of the same stuff. And I think a lot of the old timer machine learning folks will say this too. Like the research has been just a couple of like spins on top of the old research that was already around in like the nineties or maybe, or, or even earlier than that. Right. But the, because you're able to realize so much of your value through just simple heuristics a lot of the time. And only now are you able to see that actually we're at the point where you can realize a lot more value using machine learning than those man-made heuristics that we're seeing this shift towards uh, towards machine learning. And I think we're seeing that again come up in the context of batch machine learning versus real-time machine learning. Like it's definitely way easier to you know, pre-compute all your predictions mm-hmm. beforehand and then just serve them live, right? And reason people weren't able to wouldn't go into real time is like there's so much work that you got to do to make it real time and the benefits relatively small. Um, I think there's now more and more evidence that actually the benefit will be larger and there's this simplification where actually you don't need to do as much work to enable real time inference. As you're working with the different people and partners in the community, I wonder about this pull that I imagine has to happen like uh, between I know that Twitter is a partner, right? And they're contributing mm-hmm. to Feast. And you have a company like Shopify also contributing to Feast. And these companies are by no means small. And they right. have very specific use cases that are orders of magnitude greater than your average data scientist with his laptop or her laptop. And how are you able to look at what's coming through from Twitter and, hey, we need this, this, or that, and still stay true to a vision of making Feast like simple and open so that people can come in, they can plug in, no matter where they are in this stage of maturity? That's, that's a really good question. And I think we do see this a lot where, you know, we have users coming to us like, hey, I don't have that much data. I don't have a super strict latency requirements. I don't need a lot of complexity, right? And then you have like the Twitters of the world who are like, hey, we need massive scale, massive, like low latency. And there's definitely a tug. And I think we're currently able to do a pretty good job of it. We just have to be really, really good at thinking about what are the end-to-end user flows. Like if I'm a new user that's coming in, right? And I think Python-centric Feast does um, get this very, very well, which is there's there should be a basic version of everything working on your local machine, right? And that's gonna help not just like these data scientists, but even like some new big company that wants to come in, test it out, they can understand what a feature source is gonna do, right? And then at that point, then they can say, okay, well, I need like higher scale. Let me introduce more layers of complexity like what Twitter's doing, right? And so there's, there's this kind of management of that user journey, right? And I think where Feast 0.9 was at before was it assumed that, you know, at the very start, you just wanted everything at once, right? And I think Feast 0.10 was a really, really good step in a positive direction, right? Where uh, now it's like, okay, there's this initial, you know, onboarding phase where you, you don't need to worry about too, too much outside of Feast. It's all in Python, all on your local machine. Now you want to like scale it up. Great. If you need this, go in this direction, learn more about that. Um, so I think this pluggable nature and this extensible nature of Feast actually does make it uh, a pretty clean story. We just have to continue to focus on that going forward. I love that idea. You don't need to throw the kitchen sink at them when they want to just test it out. Just start with a little. And then if the scale and if this magnitude is needed, they can figure that out because 
people like Twitter have come before them and figured it out. And so bite off as much as you can chew for now. Whatever you need to take, you can take it and, mm-hmm. and add it on top of it. Add on top. I really like that um, yeah. idea and that visual. Build up to it. Don't just right. jump off the deep end without knowing how to swim. Yeah, I think that's also consistent with just best practices with machine learning. Right, like when you first build something, you don't want to start with the most complex model. You want to start with something simple, right? And that's going to be a pretty good baseline for you. And now, any additional complexity you introduce to the overall system, you should see that reflects you know well against this baseline. And if it's not, then you you've just introduced unnecessary complexity to your problem. And that's there's a lot of long tail you know, tech that you introduce with machine learning. So I think there's like a great paper that somebody uh, I think Google actually wrote wrote this. Yeah. that's relatively well circulated on that, right? Um, that kind of gets at some parts of the problem where, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, you need a baseline. And often for a lot of people, still making a simple model will give you ninety percent of the value, right? So as you're looking forward and you're starting to think about what you're working on in the next three months or six months and the roadmap for Feast, what gets you the most stoked? Uh, I'm really excited about reintroducing a lot of the scalability and performance characteristics of Feast 0.9 and perhaps even kind of expanding that. Like Twitter right now is working with us to you know, basically really harden the, that serving layer so that it's able to handle really, really high scale, right? And a lot of people come to us and they're like, hey, you know, how scalable or performant is Feast, right? And we want to have an answer to that. But obviously, there's, you know, that, that varies depending on their individual setup. But it's going to be really, really nice to have to be able to say, these big companies are using Feast for massive scale. Here's some benchmarks that we have. And, and there's a lot of stuff that we're working with uh, kind of the Redis folks on that as well. Like they're helping us benchmark, figure out best practices and how do you, and even optimizing our code to, to do better. So I think we're going to see a lot of optimizations and solving kind of the problems that people are facing when they're dealing with these real-time machine learning problems. And a lot of the partners are really driving a lot of that as well. So really, really grateful to to have them uh, there with us. Trying to integrate with more systems generally, you know, data quality monitoring, I'm really excited about because I think that's going to, there's going to be some sort of paradigm shift. Like I think people think of data quality monitoring as like a almost like an afterthought, and we want to make that more front and center. And then there's also, yeah, like some of the stuff around like, how do you simplify access control? How do you how do you deal with, uh, yeah, I guess there's the, the really big elephant in the room, which is like, I think feature stores right now are really, really good for somebody who's already has a pretty mature machine learning stack, and they want to kind of mm. bring you another step forward. So that that to me is kind of like the, the one to 100 step. I think there's a lot more companies at that zero to one step, but people who had just gotten all the data into the cloud, uh, you know, maybe through like using Snowflake, right? And now they're like, how do I take advantage of this? How do I lean in on this machine learning to derive value? I think we need, there's a lot of work that we can do to strengthen that story. And I think there's a lot of stuff that is on the horizon that could kind of get at that, but there's going to be a lot of brainstorming, you know, within our team, with the community on how we can really kind of polish that roadmap to to optimize for that. That's funny you say that too, because I was just talking to somebody about this and how big the machine learning market will be or who will be using machine learning, right? And if you Mm -hmm. listen to different VCs, they think that 
it's going to be everybody and the market's going to be gigantic. And that's why there's a ton of cash going into MLOps right now. What this person told me that I was talking to, they said, look, in my eyes, if you're not using machine learning, you're going to have a really hard time staying afloat. It's going to become something that is just expected of companies and not even companies, just everyone, every business mm -hmm. to be using, no matter what the size. And so whether that's you're having some kind of managed service that has some machine learning on it, if you're just a mom and pop shop, or you're going full on and you hire data scientists and machine learning engineers and a platform team or whatever, it feels like there is going to be machine learning in every aspect of business. And so you talking about this zero to one play is really interesting because right now it doesn't feel like we've even like gotten a 2% of what is potentially possible if every single yeah. business is going to be using machine learning. And especially, you know, a lot of, the, if you look at like analyst reports, for example, there's a lot of this almost like fear mongering that's happening, which is kind of consistent with what you just said, uh, which is like, hey, like you should, you know, what are the things your company needs to do to stay relevant, right? Machine learning is one of those. And, uh, you know, back at Google, I think that was, that was a key thing that we were driving around, which is that, you know, all these companies, they want to have, be able to say like, we're using machine learning somehow because they're just afraid that some other company is going to do better, use machine learning and just really rocket ship ahead. And, but I think a lot of companies right now still don't really understand, you know, what is the value of machine learning? How do you get to that value relatively quick? And I think that's, that's a space where uh, feature stores are actually fairly well positioned to help them realize, you know, shorten that time to value. Um, we just got to really focus on that, that specific user journey above all else. So. Excellent. Yeah. So anything that you would have liked me to ask that I didn't ask? I definitely want to call out some more stuff that's happening in the community. I think maybe like, you know, we're actively looking for, for new design partners and kind of expanding what Feast is doing. But I think there's, there's another interesting aspect of it, which is like, how does ML research play into all this all? Right. Like oh. there's obviously a lot of continued forward motion research. And I think there's another kind of, somewhat separate path that's happening at MLOps. And I would say probably in China, there's kind of more aligned, right? But in the US, it still feels like there are two separate tracks. They're like, if I'm a large company, I can take advantage of this and, and do a bunch of stuff. But that that knowledge is not really transferred out there. I think Hugging Face is one of those companies that is bridging the gap between research and, and practice, right? Um, and that's kind of a lot of stuff I was doing at Google as well. Because yeah, I think it's super easy for somebody to be like, oh, like how do I build like a uh, recommender system online? You can find some quick tutorial for that. Um, but that's like not at all consistent with like the latest innovations that are happening in research and how do you connect that, right? And uh, even there's some beginnings of collaborations we're having with Stanford to also try to get at this as well. Um, yeah, that's something that has been talked about quite a bit. It feels like there is a very big divide when it comes to what the industry is doing and what researchers are doing and how do you bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some people talk about how it's a two-way street. Like researchers aren't going to be able to 
work on things that are industry specific unless the industry can share data with the researchers because how are they going to be able to work on this stuff if they don't have the data to work on it uh, right. and so i've heard that as as one of the main complaints and and i think it's a fascinating problem i wonder what you have in your mind as to what could be a potential solution i think you know in emerging area is definitely still the whole differential privacy field of, um, and also, right, like, can you, I think there was some research on using GANs to basically generate data sets that roughly would be, you know, equivalent to what you would need, but, and so you can actually manually inspect it without actually being user data. There's a lot of interesting research there uh, that I think could be useful, but yeah, like that data problem is still really hard. Like how do you, how do researchers help, you know, investigate models and apply them and, it seems like it's really hard to do that outside of, you know, what these big companies are doing right now, which is let, let us hire researchers directly yeah. and have them work out on our problems. They'll sign these NDAs and then figure out ways to abstract that out so you can publish papers based off of that too. But even that's kind of this hard thing where um, these researchers that work for companies, you know, I think like I had some experience with this as well, where it's like, hey, we want to publish a paper on our research here. But for papers, you need reproducibility, right? So they had to kind of just come to, like create a whole new data set and just, and there's just a lot of like uh, challenges there. So I'm not really sure um, what the right solution there is, but certainly I think that there's going to be, there's going to be movement in that space. Like people are going to be thinking more and more around privacy and, and in, in enabling that to this data to be externalized to the public without necessarily working for that company, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's also, you do see this trend in academia to move more and more towards MLOps. So I think that there's going to, the researchers in many ways are actually fairly well positioned to, to do this, to do a lot of you know, education. And I think a lot of this is actually education. And I think that's something that the MLOps community probably could do a better job of, probably. Like mm -hmm. for somebody who's just starting out with machine learning, you don't really see like, MLOps come to the picture until it after you like, right? It, it, like you can train yourself to, yeah. The the initial path is basically you go into like something like towards data science or something, and that's like how do you kind of build an initial model to do something, right? And there's not too much talk about how do you how do you convert that into an actual production environment. Um, so I think there's also going to be a good amount of evangelism education, especially as this ecosystem starts colliding more and consolidating. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think that there's there's a lot of stuff that's in research that just requires somebody to be a, a glue in some regards, mm -hmm. right? Like somebody who's willing to say, uh, hey, let me just take your code and like run it on this thing and, and see if it works, right? And if it does work, let's try to make a library out of this or yeah. kind of make it more easily usable. Um, and that is, I think, also an emerging trend. So I, I'm optimistic. Well, Danny, this has been fascinating talking to you, man. I appreciate your viewpoint. I appreciate the way that you're coming at these problems and also the energy that you're putting into Feast and what you're doing with the community there. It's awesome. If anyone wants to reach out to you, I'm sure that you are on the Feast Tecton community Slack. And another thing that I will mention for people that are still listening, it would be great to have you all in the Feast community calls. 
Those happen bi-weekly, if I'm not mistaken, Danny? Those are bi-weekly, yep. Uh, and kind of friendly, to, There's there are different times. So there's some that are more uh, America-friendly and some that are more Asia-Pacific friendly. Perfect. So at the very least, subscribe to the newsletter, which we will leave a link to in the description so that you can stay up to date with all things Feast. That's all we've got for today. Thanks again, Danny. Thank you.